Isaiah chapter 40. It's been called the Gospel in Song. And it premiered on April 13, 1742 to a record audience of 700 people at the Great Music Hall in Dublin. The composer you would be familiar with, George Friedrich Handel, and the oratorio is called The Messiah. This this oratorio, as it's called, this beautiful song, The Messiah, Handel wrote it originally as an offering for the resurrection season in the springtime, but as you know, it's become a fixture in the Christmas holiday season. But on that day, 270 years ago, the people gathered there in the music hall and they were mesmerized. From the moment the tenor followed the mournful string overture with this opening line, Comfort ye my people, saith your God. Now, if you know Handel's Messiah, you know the song, the entire opening scene contains the first nine verses of Isaiah chapter 40. And Handel goes on later in the song to add in verses uh, 10 and 11 as well. So these 11 verses that we talked about, read through, studied on Sunday briefly, Handel has in his great song, the gospel in song. Well, that's appropriate. You can call the first 11 verses of Isaiah 40 the gospel according to Isaiah. Because in those 11 verses, we see, we hear the gospel spoken. We hear the gospel proclaimed. That is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The call of all people to say, to follow Jesus, and to say, here is your God. And we looked at that again briefly. It was only a 20-minute sermon on Sunday, so it was a short one. But this is a marvelous section And though we talked about it already on Sunday, I want to go back to verse 1 and walk our way all the way through chapter 40. There are a few things that I didn't get a chance to talk about I want to talk about tonight as we open up this great chapter. We are now in the new section called the Book of Consolations, chapter 40 through 66. And I want to show you some things even to introduce this next section of Isaiah's prophecy to you as we study this chapter. Comfort... Oh, comfort my people, says your God. And truly, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most comforting word a person can hear and receive. There is no greater thing to share. No other offering that that we can give people that can bring them to that place of true and absolute comfort. Jesus loved you. Jesus died for you. Jesus was buried and He resurrected again. And this to bring life to you if you would be born again. Faith in what He's done. And it's not a crutch. It is a comfort. And that's the thing that is hard to understand on the other side of a decision to believe in and to follow Jesus. It's hard to understand how intense, how amazing, how all-encompassing the comfort of the message of the Gospel truly is. In fact, I put it to you this way. From the moment I became a Christian, which is (laughs) 37 years ago, when I really made that choice, gave my life to the Lord, to the present day, my understanding of the comfort of the Gospel has just been one long crescendo. I am more comforted by the Gospel of Jesus Christ now than I've ever been in my entire life. And it comes through walking with Him. And it comes through going through those ugly times and the dark times and even the times of your abject failure and being brought back again and again to His grace. There is nothing more comforting. Now let me share something with you. 
2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comforts. And we talked about Sunday that both Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three aspects of God, are called the Comforter in the New Testament. God the Father right there in 2 Corinthians. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit in John 14 the Comforter. And of course, Jesus Himself called our Advocate, and that word Advocate in 1 John is the word Comforter. It's the same word in all three. But there's something else you got to hear. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, again, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Now, I share this with you. My son Hayden was surprised to hear me quote this verse on Sunday and talk about it. I got home Sunday afternoon. He said, Dad, come here. i got to show you something. And we went down to his room, down in the pit. I call it the pit. And we went down there to the pit. Sometimes it's the pit of despair. <laughs> and we went in there, and there tacked up on his little mini fridge in his room was this verse. And he had written it out last week. It was in Hayden's handwriting, stuck on the fridge, 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5. through 5. He wrote out all three of these verses. And was that was kind of his verse for the week. I, I love parents... Don't you love when you see that kind of thing? They are getting it. (laughs) Barely. And he shared, he said, Dad, I've I've been thinking about this all week long. Just the comfort that comes from the Lord. And we talked about it for a few minutes, and that's when it hit me. That word for comfort, parakletos, the paraclete, the one who comes, not a pair of cleats, that's a different term. (laughs) The paraclete, one who comes alongside The Comforter, the Helper, the word we always use for the Holy Spirit, but also describes the Father, also describes the Son. Guess who else it describes? You. You and me. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, when we accept and receive the comfort of the Gospel, we ourselves become comforters. We are told by Paul, just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant abundant through Christ. We're able to comfort those who need comforting. So now we become, along with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we join them to become parakletos. We are those who come alongside. We are the flesh, the hands and feet of Jesus in the world to bring the message of comfort, the gospel of all grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our new definition when we walk in the Lord. Comforters. Don't forget that. And so as Isaiah says, Comfort! Oh, comfort my people, says your God. Isaiah is now the messenger of the message of comfort. To bring comfort to the people of Israel. Speak kindly to Jerusalem, verse 2. And call out to her that her warfare has ended. That her iniquity has been removed. That she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now this starts out here. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Speak kindly. The word kindly literally is heart. Leb in the Hebrew. Speak to the heart of Jerusalem. God is saying. To speak to the heart indicates to speak with with tenderness. To bring a tender message to the heart of the people of Jerusalem. A peaceful message. A healing message. 
And it sounds really good until you get to the last line of verse 2. Speak comfort. Speak kindly. That she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. <laughs> I mean, how is that comforting? Israel, you get double for all your sins. How does that fit as, as a word of comfort? Well, I want you to hold that question for a minute. And we'll answer it as we go down the line here. But going on in verse 3. A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. We know the Gospel begins there because that's where John the Baptist began. And Isaiah prophesied what John the Baptist would cry out. Isaiah, I believe, heard through prophetic hearing, through the prophetic vision, heard John the the Baptist calling this out. Isaiah suddenly goes, hey, there's a voice in the wilderness calling out. Make straight the paths. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. You know, all four Gospels tell us that John the Baptist came bringing this message. Matthew chapter 3, verse 3. Mark chapter 1, verse 3. Luke chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. And John chapter 1, verse 23. All four Gospel writers emphasize that. Now granted, one would be enough. But all four emphasize, here comes John the Baptist. This prophecy is of John. All four Gospel writers quote Isaiah pointing to John saying he's the guy Isaiah was talking about. And so what follows then, this this call in the desert of, of John the Baptist, is the Gospel, the coming of Jesus. Now we read this and it goes on, let every valley be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Salida and I were talking just a few minutes ago and she was talking about some old gospel songs that occasionally don't have the best doctrine. It's absolutely true. Be careful, just because it's a hymn doesn't mean it's right. Okay, and some of the old gospel songs. What was the one about going up the? Coming up on the rough side. Of I'm coming up on the rough side of the mountain. And Salita said we'd sing that, and I think, couldn't we ever just go up on the smooth side? <laughs> you know what the Bible says? Let every valley be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain. Why? So access to the Father is easy. To make it easy to get to God. To make it easy to go up to Jerusalem. Not a a difficult struggle, but a struggle that has been ameliorated by grace. The the way is easy through Jesus Christ. And then verse 5, the glory of the Lord will be revealed. It was revealed in Jesus, will be again. All flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. A voice says, call out. And then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now if you just start in verse 1 and read through and don't stop, it doesn't take long to realize you are in a new section of the book. It reads almost like we've closed one prophetic writer and we've come into a new one. I do understand why people erroneously believe that there is a a different Isaiah. I mean, I get that, because all of a sudden we come out of woes and and burdens and and heaviness and prophecy and God dealing with Israel, and suddenly we are out on a broad plain rushing to the Lord. It's like waves of grace just begin to hit us. You're going to love this. I'm telling you, and if you haven't been spending some time 
just reading between Isaiah 40 and 66 and listening to the Lord and, and looking at these things, I encourage you as we go through over the next few months, and we'll probably be into the summer at least, <laughs> but I encourage you, just be reading through this. It, it is so, it's such a blessing, such a balm for the soul. So encouraging and so different than where we've been. Now where we've been has been cool. It's been amazing. It's been awesome. It's been challenging and convicting. Where we're going is just, wow, amazing. We are clearly in part two of the scroll of the prophet. Now again, there is that erroneous assumption that there may have been two or three or multiple authors of Isaiah, but I love what Harry Ironside said about this. He said, The New Testament definitely negates this idea of authorship and attributes chapters 40 through 66 to Isaiah himself. So, if you want to just shut the door on the argument, at least if you're talking with with believers who who accept the Bible as God's inspired word, if the New Testament says that this is so, it's so. And it pretty much ends the discussion. Ironside then quotes from Matthew 8.17, when Matthew says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Okay, So who spoke it? Isaiah. Not second or third or, or some other guy. Isaiah. What did he speak? Quote, he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. That's from Isaiah 53. That would be in the second part of the book. Luke chapter 4 verse 17 tells us the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Jesus. So in Jesus' day, the Jewish people recognized there was one scroll of Isaiah, one prophet who was Isaiah, and this was his scroll, and that's what was handed to Jesus on that fateful day when he declared himself to be the Messiah. Jesus quotes directly out of Isaiah 61, verses 1 and half of verse 2. And that's in the latter part of the book as well. When Jesus reads, He finds the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He anointed me to preach the Gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Well, Ironside continues after that. He says, So we need not trouble ourselves about such unfounded critical theories. The matter is settled for us. And I agree, absolutely. Well, so Rick, why do you keep bringing it up? (laughs) It's a good question. I need to explain something here. And I think many of you know this. There is an intense battle that is raging for the hearts and minds of all people. Not just non-believing people, but believing people as well. There is an intense battle within the body of the church that is raging, and and it's almost, almost unbelievable. But here's where we are, gang. It is fought on the field of the intellect, and the stronghold that is under the greatest attack is the stronghold of Scripture. Now, forget again for a moment about the unbelieving world who would challenge Scripture, and I would expect that. Why should I believe this book? Well, we can have that conversation. But for a believer to say, I'm just not sure it's all legit. See, that kind of talk is is amazing to me. Many of you know Clark. Clark Donnell, one of our shepherds. He is also um, a board member for Whitworth University. Uh, Whitworth, where my my daughter Hannah attends and Annalise Daly attends. And I've been having some interesting conversations with my daughter about what's going on on the Whitworth campus right now. Whitworth has long been a Presbyterian uh, school. That's the background of Whitworth. Came out of the Presbyterian church, very mainline denomination, conservative, Bible teaching, solid denomination of years gone by. 
Uh, one that I, when I was a kid growing up, a Presbyterian, yeah, solid. Nothing to worry about there. Well, Whitworth is connected with the PCUSA, Presbyterian Church of the United States of America. And uh, the PCUSA is unfortunately becoming increasingly PC <laughs> in their teaching, in their doctrine. They are right now, uh, as with the Episcopalian Church, and many mainstream, one-time solid denominations, they are embroiled in the issue of homosexuality. That That's a big discussion and debating point, but that's not the main issue. That's not the big problem. I thought that was kind of the, the boiling point. I mean, Clark and I were talking about this. He says, congregants and churches are leaving in droves because of the PCUSA's decision to ordain homosexual pastors. So that's where they're at. That's where the denomination is at. And churches are saying, no. And they're pulling out. And congregants, uh, members of Presbyterian churches their whole lives are leaving for other churches. Independent Bible teaching churches like this one that are not connected to denominations are growing while denominations are shrinking. And a lot of it is because of what's going on in the boardrooms of these denominations. Well, Clark is now chairing a task force, and I asked his permission to share this. He said it was cool. He said, actually, the cat's already out of the bag, so so we can talk about this. Uh, He's chairing a task force for Whitworth University to look into Whitworth's departure from the PCUSA. And I'm like, how can I help you pack? (laughs) I think it's the right move. Because I think the wrong moves are being made. But again, the issue is not just homosexuality or tolerance versus intolerance or all those those things. Here's the thing. Clark pulled me aside on Sunday morning. And he said, he said, here's the shocking deal. Homosexual the homosexual debate is just a symptom. It's not the main issue. I'm like, really? What's the main issue? He said the primary issue under debate in this historically conservative denomination is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Perhaps he really didn't resurrect. Perhaps at least we need to be open to the possibility. Listen, resurrection, you know this, gang, is the core of Christian faith. You take out the resurrection of Jesus, man, join the Lions Club because that's all we are. You know? I want my little Rotary Club pin, and that's it. Let's just be a social organization and do social things and forget about this whole Jesus gospel stuff. Because without the resurrection, no gospel, no comfort. It's gone. The resurrection, and it is spoken of clearly, plainly, and over and over in Scripture. If you take the resurrection out, throw away your Bibles, man, you're wasting your time. Blows my mind. The attack, gang, is at the very heart of biblical inerrancy. Because in this questioning of the resurrection of Jesus, the other question that's coming right alongside it is, can we really believe that the Bible is inerrant? Paul told Timothy 2,000 years ago, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. And gang, that is exactly what is happening in mainline denominational Christianity today. And I never thought I would say that. I always assumed that there would be a bastion of faith within the Christian church. 
But it's getting shaken up, gang. And more and more, we are going to be called upon to stand and teach truth regardless of the consequences. What did we just read in verse 8? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. Jesus said in Matthew 24-35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will not pass away. I want to show you right here in Isaiah yet another reason why I accept this. Why I I believe this. I, I believe in scriptural integrity. I believe the Word stands forever. And I do believe in the inerrant Word of God from Genesis to Revelation that this is God's Word as He gave it and not as we should interpret it. This It is what it is. He means what He said and He says what He means. And we have His Word to prove that. And I absolutely believe that. But I want you to think about a couple of things here. When Isaiah wrote this prophecy... Not only would it be 750 years plus before the New Testament was even written, but the Tanakh itself, the Hebrew Scriptures, as we have them today, were not compiled completely. Were not finished. The Torah was. First five books. You had the Torah. You had a little bit of the Nevi'im, that is the prophets. And you had some of what's called the Tetuvim, or, or Ketuvim, which is you know, Psalms, the wisdom literature. But it wasn't all completely compiled. Not yet. We're, we're still, you know, we're reading Isaiah. So Isaiah wasn't in yet, you know. What's interesting is Isaiah many times says, hear the word of the Lord, and he is speaking that this prophecy is biblical truth, is sound doctrine. But the Tanakh wasn't even finished. What's your point? It makes it absolutely amazing to me that the first part of Isaiah contains 39 chapters, and now we have 27 left. <laughs> Why is that amazing? How many books in the Old Testament? 39 plus 27 in the New Testament, 66. We have 27 chapters to go. There were 39 before. Old Testament, New Testament. If you read the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, you will get a very clear picture of the Hebrew Scriptures. Of God dealing with and working with Israel. If you read the last chapter 40 through 66, the last 27 books of the, of the, or chapters or sections of Isaiah, it speaks like the New Testament. It reads like the New Testament. 39 plus 27. But the chapters of Isaiah were added later by others, right? Well, yes, they were. But these 66 chapters as we have them strictly follow the organizational flow of Isaiah. The chapters are not put here by accident. They actually do follow, here's this woe, and then here comes this woe, and here comes this issue and that issue, and it follows the way Isaiah intended it and wrote it the way the Spirit intended it through Isaiah. We can see this even as we study through this. Isaiah 40 through 66, and you might want to just note this as a little background as we go into the second section, the second part of the book. It contains three distinct sections. Alright? 27 chapters to go, three sections. Each one expresses a, a contrast as we go through it. So section one is chapter 40 through 48. That's the first part. And in chapters 40 through 48, we get a definite contrast of the one true God and the false gods of man. One true God and man's folly. Okay? The second section picks up in Isaiah 49 and runs through Isaiah 57. And it beautifully contrasts the suffering servant and the coming king. Talking about Jesus. 
And we'll see that. I can't wait to get there. Section number 3 begins in chapter 58 and runs to the end of the book, chapter 66. And it contrasts the faithful to the rebellious, which follows a lot like um, the book of Revelation. So you have these three sections across these 27 chapters. Huh. That's interesting. 27 is divisible by 3. For you math buffs. But check this out. For all the comfort in this book of consolation, one of the reasons why we know there are three sections is we see Isaiah conclude each one in a very similar way. Section number 1. He concludes in Isaiah 48, verse 22, There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. Section 2, Isaiah 57, verse 21, There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So he now has concluded twice the same way. And finally, at the very end of the book, the last verse, Isaiah 66, verse 24, They will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an an abhorrence to all mankind. Say, Rick, I thought these 27 (laughs) chapters were supposed to speak like the New Testament. They do. Remember, Jesus talked about hell more than He talked about heaven that the warning of what was coming is is ominous and is constant. And why would God do that? Because He cares. Because He cares about our eternal condition. He warns against hell simply because He does not want us to go there like any good parent would warn a child against harmful or damaging behavior. And remember, the Lord is still Gadosh Israel. He is still the Holy One of Israel. And that reminds us that His holy presence necessitates a holy standard. There's no peace for the wicked because peace comes through knowing Jesus Christ. And if you're wicked, you're not going to know Him. If you're wicked, you cannot stand in the presence of the God of all peace, the Holy One of Israel. He is the Holy One and His standard is so absolutely high, it is only attainable through the blood sacrifice of His suffering servant Jesus, and not through anything that we do. And we see the grace coming out of this, even as there is a warning against wickedness. But but there's more. In Isaiah 40-66, through the prophet continues to call the Lord Gadosh Israel. He's going to use that phrase 13 more times. What's interesting to me is I went through and I was looking at these. Twelve of these times, he specifically names the Lord. He's talking about the Lord and he says, You are Kadosh Israel, or Kadosh Israel says, the Holy One of Israel says, the Holy One of Israel deals with you this way. He's talking specific. The thirteenth time, he's not talking about the Lord, he's talking about Zion. And he says, Jerusalem, you are Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So he takes the name and he ascribes it to Jerusalem, to Zion, to the Jewish people. You belong to him. So what? Well, So the 12 times that it's applied directly to God, once again we find 12 is divisible by 3. Right? Three sections, 27 chapters. Oh, by the way, in each one of the three sections there are nine different uh, areas or parts to them. Nine sections within a section. 9 plus 9 plus 9 is 27. All divisible by 3. 27 divisible by 3. Holy One of Israel, 12 times, divisible by three. Rick, what are you getting at? I'm getting at this. The Holy One of Israel, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is represented by the number three. 
And we see this playing out. And, and this kind of intricacy in putting together Scripture... Someone might say, well, Isaiah must have really sat down and thought this one out. (laughs) Then Isaiah is brilliant. Absolutely off the charts. To think some of these things through. And and to come up with 27 sections, not even knowing the New Testament would contain 27 books. I mean, see where where I'm going? That Scripture itself begins to prove itself and to bear itself up as this remarkable, remarkable book that no human being could have thought ahead to put together. Only Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our triune God, God over all, the Holy One of Israel. It's that kind of thing that continues to amaze me. Continues to inspire me and continues to support me standing up and say the Word of the Lord will last forever. And the Word of the Lord is, this is the inerrant Word of of God. And I'll say one more thing, gang. If you want to know if the Bible is true or not, study it. If you want to stay on the side that you believe Scripture is false and, and full of erroneous things and contradictions, don't read it because you will find that you're wrong. <laughs> the more we study the Word, the deeper I get into the Bible, the more I just say, oh, wow, it's perfect from a perfect God. But let's go back and look at verse 2 for a second. Because I asked that question, alright, speak kindly to Jerusalem, call out to her that her warfare has ended, her iniquity has been removed, and she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What does he mean? Double for all her sins. How is that a tender comfort? Did you notice there are three aspects to this verse? Three things. To speak kindly, tenderly to Jerusalem that her warfare has ended. And the first section of this last part of the book, chapter 40 through 48, describes that. Her warfare has ended. Her iniquity has been removed. Well, how? By the suffering servant, described in the second section, chapter 49 through 57. And the third part, and that she has received double for all her sins. And gang, chapter 58 through 66 explains that to us. But if you know chapter 58 through 66, you know that it's all about the coming kingdom. That it's all about the restoration of Israel. That it's all about good stuff. So how does that explain or express being paid back double for all her sins? Listen, gang. We're not talking about a double punishment here. And a cursory reading, if you just read it in English and skip right on by it, you might think, wow, yeah, they're really bummed out. Double for all her sins. Two times the punishment. It's not what he's saying. Some believe that, but it's not just. It's not fair. And it's not the way a just and fair and loving God operates. That one people would get worse. And in this case, Israel, why would they receive double? Gang, the characteristic, primary characteristic of God is love. Right? He is a God of love. God of all mercy. God of comfort. And we're talking about comfort here. The word... Double. She has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The word, the phrase actually, has received here. In the Hebrew, it is written in the active perfect verb tense, not the past tense. So it's not she has received as in the past. Literally translated, it means she is receiving. Israel is receiving. And what it's doing, what, what Isaiah is saying here is pointing to the future. He's pointing to a time yet to come. Okay, 
Look at the context of the verse. Speak kindly. Again, this is a, a kindness, a tenderness, a comfort. Speak kindly. That her warfare has ended, which is of the future. We know that. And that her iniquity has been removed. And after that, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Wait a minute. If her iniquity has been removed, why is she now being punished again? She's not. The double he's talking about, I just love this. It's not a double punishment. It's the double blessing that comes from the flood of redemption that overcomes the suffering of sin. This is a double blessing. Isaiah uses a phrase from Jewish real estate. Receiving double. What does this mean? Receiving double. When a Jewish homeowner underwent or went underwater and had to turn to a creditor to save their house, what they would do is they would come together, they'd make the credit transaction, and they would write it out on two scrolls. The creditor would take one scroll into his possession. The other scroll, the other copy, was nailed to the doorpost of the home. And this would signify a temporary loss of ownership to the creditor. The creditor now has authority over this house, now owns this house, until the the person in the house, the original homeowner, landowner, can pay him back. And that would stay. Wouldn't that be nice? You know? You get a little deep in debt, and you, I mean, that would be most of our houses. You know, we just, the bank has a big sign that sits there on our doorpost. <laughs> Still owes X amount of dollars, you know, that'd be nice. I think I'd be inviting people into the back of the house if that was the case. Here's the deal when the debt was paid, the notice then would be doubled over, tacked up, and covered right on the doorpost as a sign that the account had been settled. To receive double. Now, (laughs) the blood of the Passover lamb was painted where? On the doorpost. And that blood, gang, that blood's not enough. The blood of the Passover lamb caused God to pass over the sins previously committed. But the sins are still there. The debt is still there, hanging on the doorpost. The blood, as it were, for Israel is still on the doorpost and will remain on the doorpost until fully satisfied by the blood of the suffering servant. So what Isaiah is saying here is that Israel receives double for all her sins, not indicating the punishment of the debt, but the satisfaction of the debt. She receives double. She does not receive what her sins deserve. She receives double in terms of blessing, redemption, salvation, forgiveness. Listen to Isaiah 53, verse 10. The Lord was pleased to crush him, Jesus, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. This is a comforting word. And I love reading that because in the same way, the fallout of our sin is bad. The fallout of our sin. But our redemption is glorious. And and, and consider the difference. We still bear the consequence of sin. You know, Christians like everybody else still bear the consequence of sin in the world. We have corrupt bodies. You know? Everything from coughs to colds to cancer and on. There is a corruption in the world. We talked about this, I think, just last week. 
But the glory to come will far surpass the corruption of now. You know? The the fallout from our sin, yeah, it's bad, yeah, it's ugly, yeah, we still struggle with it. But when glory comes, when Jesus comes, when we come into our glorified bodies, gang, right now we're born again spiritually, but our resurrection will be physical as well. A double blessing. Wow. We will receive double for all our sins. Paul put it this way, 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Israel, you're going to receive the double blessing. We're going to double up the debt, and it is paid in full. And you will experience glory, and so we will as well. Verse 9, get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might. With His arm ruling for Him, behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. That's Jesus, Revelation 22, verse 12. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock in his arm. He will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. And that's Jesus again, the good shepherd, John chapter 10. Here is the one. Here is the one in these first 11 verses about whom we say, here is your God. It's Jesus. Here is your God. Here is the Gospel. It is a gospel of comfort. It is the gospel of good news. And He came to be the Good Shepherd. Indeed, still shepherding us as a Good Shepherd today. He comes again as the mighty ruler with His reward and His recompense in His hand. Now Isaiah goes on to describe our God. Still Jesus, by the way. Still Father, Son, and Spirit. Verse 12, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand. (laughs) Who marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. Who's done that? Isaiah asks. Sounds like we just got slipped back into the last couple chapters of Job. Who has done this mighty, marvelous thing? Let me ask you some questions on this verse. How much water can you hold in the palm of your hand? Not much. He holds it all. He measured it out from the hollow of His hand. Listen, roughly 70% of the earth's surface is covered by water. 70%. About 98% of that 70% is salt water, so it's undrinkable. 2% is fresh water. But of that 2%, 1.6% is frozen in the polar ice caps and the glaciers. Of that... Now we have another 0.36% that is found in what are called aquifers, porous rocks, and in underground wells and springs. So not really reachable to us unless we drop a well. But bottom line, we are left with 0.036% in the lakes and the rivers for us to drink fresh water and to you know, bottle. 0.036% of the earth's water. And it's more than enough. It's far more than we will ever need. That amount, gang, still amounts to trillions of gallons. Trillions. 
At least a gallon for every dollar of the national debt. (laughs) But the point is, God measured these waters out of the hollow of His hand. Oh, you don't think that that's a literal thing? Could be. Isaiah's making the point, though, that our God is big. He's huge. He is massive. He is beyond. We can't even, I cannot comprehend how big the hand would have to be to hold all of the earth's waters. And we're talking not only on the earth, I didn't even touch the atmosphere. All of it is the water that encompasses, encases, and runs on the earth. He held in the palm of his hand, Isaiah is saying, Who's done that? God has. Can you mark off the heavens by a span? Well, if I knew what a span was, okay, a span is roughly the distance between your pinky and your thumb. Okay, that's about a span. It's almost, for some people more than others, nine inches. Okay, it's half a cubit. Cubit is uh, traditional cubit is eighteen inches. So half a cubit, a span. Isaiah says that God marked off the entire heavens that way. How long would that take? To mark the heavens with a span? Colossians 1.17 says He's before all things and in Him all things hold together. In other words, He's got the whole world. Thank you. That's beautiful. That's great. But He's got a lot more than that in His hands. Holding the water in the hollow of His hands, marking off the universe with the span of His fingers, and He's got... The dust of the earth, he says, who has calculated the dust of the earth by measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. He's painting a picture here. He's saying God took all the dust of the earth and He weighed it out and made mountains and made the hills with it. He knows how much Mount Rainier weighs, how much dust it took to build that mountain. He knows how much Mount Baker weighs. He asked him, Lord, how much is... What's the full weight? How many how many specks of dust in Mount Baker? The Lord would say, and he'd give the answer. I don't know what it is. A lot. And he weighs it out. I was thinking, reading that, and going, that's kind of like the make line at Papa Murphy's Pizza. <laughs> you know? I mean, they measure out the exact number of pepperoni and the exact amount of cheese and the exact amount of sauce. It has to be measured. I know this. My daughter worked there. Jeff D'Angelo owns the one in Anacortes. Josh owns the one in, in Oak Harbor. Interesting, we have both the pizza guys at the bridge. There's got to be a correlation here. got to think about it. The bread of life, I don't know, something like that. The bread of life. So I'm thinking about, you know, they're measuring this out. Isaiah says God measured out the dust that went into the mountains and the hills of the earth. That's like Naomi and David playing with Play-Doh, man. Mountain. <laughs> and this describes God. By the way, it's a good thing to know that God measures the dust because Psalm 103 verse 14 tells us that He Himself knows our frame. He's mindful that we are dust. If He knows every speck of dust, guess what? He knows you intimately. He knows everything that went into creating you, bringing you to life. He is intimately aware of you, your struggles, your problems, your issues, your deals, your thoughts, everything He knows. Now on the one hand, you could go, really? Yeah, God of love, who is passionate about His people, 
And hearkening back to the poetry of the wisdom literature of the Bible, Isaiah just beautifully, one verse masterfully portrays the grandeur and the majesty of our God. Psalm 30 verse 4 says, Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. Surely I do. And it's not surely. Yahweh, Yeshua, and the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. You follow the flow here of Isaiah's word choice in verse 12. It's interesting. He says, measured, marked off, calculated, weighed. And then he comes to verse 13 and he stays with this portrayal, this word picture of measuring when he says, who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or has counseled or has, as his counselor has informed him. The word directed there, you might make a note, is calculated. It's the same word we see back in verse 12 for the calculation of the dust of the earth by measure. Who has calculated the spirit of the Lord? The word is takan in the Hebrew. God calculated the mountain dust, gang. Who has calculated his spirit? John chapter 3, verse 34. He whom God has sent speaks the words of God and He gives the Spirit without measure. Think about that. He measures out the dust to create the mighty mountains. But when it comes to the measure of His Spirit, He gives His Spirit and He doesn't use the measuring cup. He doesn't figure out the exact right amount for each person. Do you realize you have right now, you have the entire offering of the Spirit of the Lord without measure. I want more of a spirit. You can't get any more because you have it all. The question is, are you going to give up more of yourself? When we talk about it, I had a conversation earlier today about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, what's that? More. I didn't think you could get any more of of the Lord. No, you can't. But you can open up yourself to contain more. You're the container of the Spirit as He pours out His Spirit into you. And when we say, hey, come forward and pray for the anointing, pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, don't don't let the words confuse you. What we're saying is, come forward and say, Lord, I want to yield more of myself to the work of Your Spirit in my life. I want more. Well, I've already given you all of it. So how can I get more? By opening up more room to receive of the Spirit He's already given without measure. Gang, that verse right there, John the Baptist was talking about Jesus. And that verse right there should knock us out of our seats. He gives His Spirit without measure. The only limitation of the Holy Spirit in your life is how much you're willing to receive. Not how much God is willing to give. He is already given without measure. Verse 13. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or as His Counselor has informed Him? With whom did He consult? And who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? In other words, can you weigh in on God's decisions? Can you, do you advise the Lord or counsel him on his next move? Sometimes I try. (laughs) Lord, here's, here's what needs to happen here. I'm just giving you my advice, you know. Take it or leave it. It's good advice, Lord. Granted, I know, hollow of your hand. I get that. But but I'm going to counsel you, Father. How many of our prayers are like that? 
Lord, this is what has to happen in my life and it needs to happen now. Lord, this is what I want You to accomplish. you got to do it now. Who, as His Counselor, has informed Him? Let me just remind you what we talked about last Wednesday. The best way to pray is to give Him your heart and accept His will. Pray your heart. Yeah, bring your, your concerns, your requests, your petitions before Him. The Bible tells us to. But once you do, and Lord, whatever Your will is, that's what I want. Here's, in my very limited, puny perspective, here's what I think I need. <laughs> so I'm going to share that with you. But you know what I really need. Your will be done, Lord. Proverbs 3, verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Now Isaiah goes on in verse 15 to point out the sheer ridiculousness of man questioning or presuming to outthink God. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket (laughs) and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, He lifts up the islands like fine dust. Compare that with verse 12. He who measures out the waters in the hollow of His hand and of all the waters of all the planet, the nations are like a boop. That's it. That's what they're worth. That's how they compare to the greatness of God. He measures out the dust for the mighty mountains and the nations are a speck. The United Nations is looking into some human rights violations in the United States of America as of today. It's good to know the United Nations where Syria is uh, being promoted or at least uh, put up for the UN Human Rights Council. I read stuff like that and and I hear this verse and just go, I I get it. We need to do something about the United States of America. That's all you got. The nations are a drop in the bucket, a speck of dust from the coastlands or the islands. Why why is it? The, The word islands there can be coastlands both ways. Why the coastlands? Well, they do tend to house the national capitals and great population centers around the world, don't they? These are the mighty places on earth. These are the places where man has really staked his claim and built his great tall buildings and his massive skyscrapers and his, and his pride. And they're a speck. Verse 16. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. The word meaningless there is tohu. means vain, empty, without form. And he's not saying the people are meaningless to God. And John 3.16 makes that very clear that God so loved the world. So it's not that people are meaningless to God. It's that the nations, the empires, the domestic achievements of man, these things are... A drop and a speck to the Lord. And I've shared this before, I know, but I'll say it again. The one thing, the only thing that made America exceptional was that our founders based our laws and rights on the eternal Word of God. There's your American exceptionalism right there. It is not because I happen to have been born an American. And therefore I'm better than a Canadian. They got better syrup, I'm telling you. 
It's not, you know, and I'm all about national pride, that's fine. But our exceptionalism, the further away we get from this book, the less exceptional we are. Now, as if to highlight his point, Isaiah reveals the folly of idolatry. Verse 18, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with Him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot and seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. And and this is dripping with sarcasm. Isaiah is saying this is absolute stupidity. He who holds all the waters in the hollow of his hand, you're going to try and make an idol that would compare? And part of the problem in Israel, gang, we've talked about, wasn't, wasn't denying God. It was trying to come up with a form that they could worship that would represent Jehovah. At Mount Sinai, the, the, the golden calf, you know, many commentators believe, and I think they're probably right, that the golden calf was not another God. It was an Israelite representation of Yahweh. We, just, we, we want to believe in and pray to Yahweh, but we need to see something here. So let's, let's build a golden calf, or let's build a really nice church. Let's do something that we have a physical representation of God. Let's go to the barn, because when I'm in the barn, I feel Him more than anywhere else. Really? All of our representations fall so woefully short of who the Creator is. And to put stock in the image of created things rather than the Almighty Creator Himself. Gang, that is the issue Paul was pointing out in Romans chapter 1. Just listen to this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. God made it evident to them. You know that you don't have to convince anyone that God exists. We know. We know. The atheist knows, which is why he rails so much against God. It's why he makes an issue out of God. If he didn't know in his heart there's something to fight against, he wouldn't fight. And he goes on and says, Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature, they've been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So they're without excuse. So not only do we know God, know there's a God within, but we look outside and we see that there's a God. Even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged, listen, exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, or of birds, or four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over. And Isaiah says, how can you compare? That's the problem with images, and in the church today. That's the problem with ornate things, and stained glass, and, and big symbols, and icons. The problem is, you, you cannot... You can't compare. You can't even grasp what John tries to describe to us in Revelation 4 and 5. The throne room in heaven. That description just sends my head to spinning. You can't grasp. And and yet, you've been in the the Catholic church in Anacortes, which I was in once for a funeral, sitting there just looking up at, at the images, the carved images that are supposed to be Four representations of the cherubim. 
the four faces, four separate images. And I'm like, well, first of all, that's wrong because they're all the same angel. You know, four faces, one angel. But I'm looking around going, this, this just doesn't, it doesn't even come close. You can't compare. Verse 21, Isaiah says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? That's quite a claim. The Lord through the prophet is saying, you go all the way back to day one. This has been proclaimed to you. You should not be surprised here. You should not be shocked in all these things you're hearing about God. You should have known this. Since the very first day, it's been talked about. God's message, gang, was not something that suddenly appeared through Moses. Or all of a sudden, Abraham gets this idea. You know, I love hearing you know the History Channel and they talk about Moses and how what Moses really did when he came along. Abraham on down through Moses. What they really did was they brought monotheism to the world. No, they didn't. It was already here. Adam was monotheistic. Eve, they knew. One God. And ever since the beginning, it's been that way. It's not like a few billion years into Earth's existence, man finally stood up and went, aha. No. It's not something that sprung up out of ancient man's desire for something more than himself. No. God's Word has been declared from day one all the way up to present day and will be into eternity. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech or there are no words. Their voice is not heard. But their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterance to the end of the world. What do you mean, David? What are you saying? You don't have to hear the words to see the Word. Huh? The stars don't have to sing to declare the glory of God. The creation doesn't have to blurt out, there's a God! You know? Like the singing bush in The Three Amigos. You ever see that movie? <laughs> they come around the corner and there's a bush and they're supposed to look for the singing bush and he's sitting over there, the bush is moving, going, she'll be coming around the mountain when she comes. You know? And Steve Martin walks up and goes, excuse me, are you the singing bush? She'll be coming around the mountain when she comes. I said, are you the singing bush? I'm sorry. <laughs> It's where my mind goes. It just cracks me up. The bushes don't have to sing. The trees don't have to speak for us to hear them say, there's a God. There is a God, a great, almighty creator. Verse 22. It is He who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. The word circle there, chug, in the Hebrew, means a vault or dome or arch. And it speaks of roundness. And so here's Isaiah talking about the roundness of the the circle of the earth. Which is interesting because as recently as the 19th century gang, there were still arguments as to whether or not the earth was round or flat. It's not just a problem with Republicans. <laughs> Think that Earth is flat. Those flat Earth people. <laughs> in fact, it was only intellectuals and highly learned people in around the 16th century that began to question, is it flat? Perhaps it is round. 
Interesting. 2,700 years ago, Isaiah said, the circle of the earth. The earth is round. The Bible declared truth long before science caught up. I love to point that out. (laughs) 4,000 years ago, Job wrote in Job 26, verse 7, he stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. The earth is round, the Bible says, and the earth hangs in the galaxy and is suspended on nothing. No one would have believed that. The Bible declared it from the very beginning forward. And by the way, science shows us that galaxies are moving away from us. You've heard the the expanding universe theory, and and it has been proven effective. Yes, the the universe is expanding, and we know this because galaxies are... Here's the Milky Way, and they're going out from us. They're going away. And because of this, they think, perhaps, there might actually have been a single point of creation. (laughs) Duh! (laughs) What the Bible describes... And his verse is like this. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain. He spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He starts here and he spreads it out. Of course that's how creation took place. And if you had faith, if you read the words of God and said, oh, that's how he did it, you would know. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. There's that word tohu again. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. But He merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. Historical Israel, if they heard Isaiah's words and believed in them, they would have realized the authority and the power of God against all foreign threats and against all failed leaders. That the average Joe or perhaps the average Joseph, in Israel, could sit there and say, God is on the throne, He is all-powerful, therefore, even though Manasseh is an evil king, and even though Babylon is breathing down our necks, God is still in authority. It's going to be alright. So don't worry about this presidential election cycle. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Well, Rick, what are you going to do? What? talk about that another time. I'm not saying don't vote. (laughs) Not sure who to vote for, but don't (laughs) worry. Because God is the one who sets up and deposes rulers. God is the one who reduces rulers to nothing. Their glorious grand rule. It's nothing. Just pray. Trust the Lord. 1 Peter 5, verse 6, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him, for He cares for you. Verse 25, To whom then will you liken Me, that I would be His equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these. And He's talking about the stars. The One who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. So if you're having a star named after you, you might want to forget it's already got a name. (laughs) It's already done. Alright. Because of the greatness of His might and the strength of His power, listen, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? 
and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. If God counts and names every single star without losing track of a single one of them, do you think, perhaps, that He knows your current situation? That maybe He is aware of what's going on in your life. Aware of your pain. And aware of your heartache. And aware of your concerns and your struggles and your burdens. He knows. That is a great comfort. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth that we've just been talking about, all of this majesty and wonder, He does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. Now, we got to understand this. Far too often, we anthropomorphize God. What do you mean? We see Him as a human being. We consider or we think of God like we think of man. We say... Lord, I I know you've got a lot going on, but I just want to share this one thing with you. As if he's got so many things and he has to go, all right, just a minute, I'll be right with you, Glenn. Hang on. (sighs) Dealing with Syria right now. All right, what? What? (laughs) As if he is ever at a loss for understanding. As if he ever gets tired. Never. He is God. Now, now I said, well, I get tired, so he must get tired. Wrong! (laughs) Will I grow weary? Doesn't he grow weary? No. I get overwhelmed. He must get overwhelmed sometimes. No, that's a human trait. Well, I'm limited by time and energy and understanding. Therefore, therefore, isn't it marvelous to have a God who is unlimited by time, unlimited by energy, unlimited in understanding, Isaiah is saying, don't you get it? He is God. And I remember, even as a kid, I remember thinking, the only God I could truly believe in is a God I cannot fully ever understand. The only God that I could truly trust to be big enough to handle this entire world and deal with me (laughs) is a God who is beyond my comprehension. Gang, that is the God described in Scripture. He is not anthropomorphic. He is not human in nature except that He took on human form in the person of Jesus Christ. Except that He took on limitations when He walked the earth for those 33 plus years. And that's what makes Jesus even all the more overwhelming. Is that the vastly, completely unlimited God limited Himself. So that He could be the perfect sacrifice that you and I might become and come into His limitless presence. That's the crux of the comfort, gang. That's the point of verse 9. Here is your God. And Isaiah's going to go on through the 40s here. He's going to continue to say, here is your God. And the description is just breathtaking. Beyond our comprehension. And marvelous. Because every verse I read, I say, yes, 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 Lord. This this is what I need to believe. Oh, you believe it because you need to? No. I believe it because it's true. But I also do have a need. I don't want to believe in a God that is like Brian. And I love Brian. But you know what? Brian gets tired. I've seen it. I know you don't believe it. I've seen it. We wear out. We are... Well, he's inscrutable, so I guess that would make us scrutable. (laughs) 
We're not like Him, gang. Here is your God. Unlimited, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God. He lays us out in this chapter to show us that, that this is the one. He is the Holy One of Israel. He's the one that we're called to put our trust in. Wow. Okay. Unlimited reserves. I have nothing to fear. Let me finish this. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous men, vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Isaiah is marvelous. The prophet says, Here is your God. And here's what this means He is limitless, and you and your limitations can gain strength and power in Him and not in yourself. It's one of the most beautiful passages, promises in all of Scripture. That those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. And with our limitations and weaknesses and lack of understanding, that's what we need. We need somewhere to go where we know we can count on His strength. He's not going to give way. He's not going to crumble. He's not going to fall apart. He's not going to get overwhelmed. I can rely on His strength. And who does it come to? Isaiah says, those who wait. Two words here at the close of this chapter. Wait and walk. Get these two words into your heart. Wait and walk. Wait. This is not a passive waiting. This is not show up at the barn and sit here. What are you doing? Waiting. What are you waiting for? Waiting on the Lord. Really? Yeah. How long are you going to do this? Till He comes. Can you give me a cheeseburger or something? Because I'm getting a little hungry. It's not passive waiting. The word has two meanings. The word is kavah in the Hebrew. Kavah means to look with eagerness and expectancy. That's waiting, to wait expectant. I am looking for Him to come. I am looking for Him to do something. I am looking for His clear and present return. 2 Timothy 4, 8, Paul did. Paul said, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Love is appearing. That's waiting on the Lord. It's expectancy. John said, 1 John 3, 2, We know when He appears we'll be like Him because we'll see Him just as He is and everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. The word wait, the word hope, same word. Some of your uh, scriptures, some of your versions may say those who hope in the Lord. Same idea, but it's expectancy. To look forward with eagerness. That's one definition for kavah. There's another definition that I think is really cool. It means to collect or to bind together in a central location. Well, how does that apply? You wait on the Lord by collecting yourself to the centrality of Christ Jesus. Collecting yourself and anyone who wants to come to bind together in that place where Jesus is. We wait for the Lord. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so waiting on the Lord poses this question for us, gang. 
Have you given all authority over to Him? Does Jesus have all authority over your life? You want to wait on the Lord? Give up authority. Bind yourself to Him. Gather together to the central person of Jesus, His authority. That's the key to strength. The strength for those who hope in the Lord is putting everything under the authority and the supremacy of Jesus Christ to the smallest thing in your life. The most insignificant and trivial thing. Give it to Him, man. Hand it over to Him. Woman, let Him have it. Complete authority. And you'll get stronger. Why? Well, because you're not spending all your energy on these things. You've given it to the authority of Jesus. You're bowing to Him. Collecting all that I am, all that I have, all that I'm about, and gathering it together for His purpose. And note what happens. Those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. But wait. Notice the progression. It's not, we will walk, we will run, we will fly. It's, we will fly, we will run, we'll walk. Isn't that a little backwards, Isaiah? Not at all. We wait and we walk. What do you mean? Listen, I come to Jesus born again and I am flying. And I'm so excited. And it's just wonderful to be in the Lord. But I don't stay in the heights. I can't. I can't maintain that kind of emotional high. But I can run. So I run in the Lord. But eventually, I'm not up to the run. So I walk. You know what happens when you get to that point in your Christian life? That's where true faith sets in. Because you're not based on the emotions of the flight or the exhilaration of the run. You're just walking in faith. And you know what He promises? You will not grow weary. You just walk in faith. You keep walking. I What a marvelous promise. I can walk and not become weary. I wait on the Lord and I walk in the Lord. He doesn't promise that we're always going to fly. He doesn't say we'll be forever on the run. He says there's no weariness in the walk. And that's where we're all headed. From the brand new baby Christian who's flapping their little wings like crazy to the long time Christian who is consistent, a long obedience in the same direction, just walking in the Lord and you will not grow weary in that. Now understand, the day is coming when we will fly. We will all fly. And Paul says it clearly. We'll be caught up together in the, loud, in the clouds to, to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord. So I want to answer your question, Spencer. Spencer asked, asked me a question. Didn't really I mean, pose kind of as a question a couple Sundays ago. We were just talking about the joy of the coming kingdom and sharing all that. And Spencer just goes, he goes, you know, I want him to come so badly that there are times when I can barely stand it. And, and I could see the pain, literally pain in, in Spencer's eyes. And I have felt that same pain where you're just going, ah, if you would come right now, it would be perfect. I'm counseling you, Lord, come now. You know? <laughs> My advice, don't wait. And perhaps you felt that where you just go, you're in the middle of even reading what we're reading tonight, just going, ah, oh, we will fly. And it's going to be awesome. The double blessing. What do you do? How do you bear it? How do you go on one more day when you just almost can't stand the thought 
of one more day without being in His presence, what do you do? Gang, you wait and you walk.